love it. All right, let's pray, and we'll jump into the sermon today. Father, Lord, we just praise you. We thank you for who you are, for your goodness to us, and I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that your spirit would stir in our hearts. Lord, you'd draw us into the way of Jesus, that, Lord, we'd commit to it fully, that we'd learn it, we'd love following you, Lord, and uh, Father, that you would just make yourself look glorious in our eyes today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Our campaign that we started a few weeks ago is called The Third Way. In this campaign, basically what we're talking about is how we live in such a polarized world that we're so drawn to one extreme or the other. We're we're drawn to either being Democrat or Republican, conservative, liberal, and pro this and anti that. And what tends to happen is we, as we're drawn to the polls, we're expected that if we agree with one part of their ideology, then we're expected to adopt the entire ideology as a whole. And if we don't take all of the ideology, then we're kind of outside of that camp or that group. And what we've been talking about here in this campaign is instead of allowing ourselves to drift into one ideology fully and accept every aspect of it, to follow the way of Jesus. And as we follow the way of Jesus, in some areas we'll find alignment, we'll find agreement with one camp or one ideology or another. But at some point, there will inevitably come a conflict or a tension where that ideology doesn't agree with the way of Jesus. And when that comes, which way will we choose? Will we choose to continue following the way of Jesus, or will we follow the way of that other ideology? Our big idea throughout the campaign is this, that for Christians, our way of life and our thinking must first be informed by Jesus. Again, very broad statement, very, very simple. Uh, You're not going to find a lot of disagreement among Christians on this type of statement. We believe this to be true, but then there comes a disconnect in our practice and in our way of life. That either we're unaware of the way of Jesus, the way he taught, the way he lived, or we're aware of it, but we are hypocritical (laughs) to a degree. We all are. And we believe it, but we don't really practice it. Some reasons, sometimes because we just don't want to, sometimes because it's really, really difficult. And so this campaign is about focusing our attention, our eyes on the way of Jesus and committing to following that above all other ideologies and ways of life. As I said, Christians, we are often hypocritical. That's one of the very common criticisms levied against Christians is that we are hypocritical, that we don't follow and actually practice what we preach. Now, again, I think there's two reasons why somebody makes this claim. One is that the person doesn't really know very much about the way of Jesus, which is perhaps often true. But the second reason that somebody makes this claim is because their experiences with Christians don't look very much like Jesus. tend to be combative, angry, or we just don't live life the way that they perceive Jesus would live life. And I fear option two may be correct more often than not, that we often just don't live the way of Jesus. So when people encounter us who are skeptical to the Christian faith, do they see a way of life and a way of thinking that models and reflects to them the true way of Jesus? First week I quoted this from Andy Stanley. I wanted to 
remind us of it and bring it up again. He said skeptics, that is people who are skeptical of the Christian faith, but exploring it, they aren't just asking if they believe what Christians believe. They're asking if Christians really believe what Christians believe. I love the way he frames that. People watching to see if Christians actually believe and practice the way of Jesus as they claim to. And of course, we will fail at times, but is our heart's desire to pursue the way of Jesus. And so in the first week, I tried to just emphasize how the way of Jesus is better. The way of Jesus is way better. <laughs> way. Um, and just encourage you to desire, to long for the way of Jesus, to envision yourself on a dusty road, just head down, following on the heels of Jesus. And last week, we talked about how this framework of winning and losing isn't really the framework of Jesus. Instead, his goal, his priority, was to do the will of God, even if it meant taking a loss. And Jesus ended up winning by losing first. Today, I want to talk about our general posture towards the culture. Uh, Our general posture in the way of Jesus towards the culture around us, the broader uh, culture of America, the culture of Burlington, the Western culture of our day. What's our posture towards the culture? In a talk uh, I listened to from Tim Keller called Faithful Presence for the Future, he gave it at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, Tim Keller is a former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and just a brilliant cultural analyst, brilliant thinker. Um, He said in this talk that there are three challenges for the church today. The three that he was focusing on, at least, or that he thought that were most pertinent or relevant to up-and-coming seminary students who would soon be pastors. Evangelism. He said, uh, evangelism is a challenge because the general uh, categories of sin, salvation, Jesus, sacrifice, all of that stuff... We can't assume that folks in our culture have those categories when we begin speaking to them. So he said that's, that's a challenge for us. The next, that's a different, that's changed. Different is formation. Next, how do we form Christians who have already been formed by a secular culture? It's a big challenge. The third one, the third one is what caught my eye, is political polarization. Okay, so the first two, one and two, if you look at those, those are challenges for the church all the time, always, right? From the beginning. How do, we, how do we share the love of Jesus with people? How do we present the gospel in such a way that we're encouraging people that the way of Jesus is the best way to live and be human, that God has saved you and delivered you, that beautiful message of the gospel? And then formation. How do we form Christians to be more like Jesus? Discipleship. Those have always been challenges for the church, and those are churchy things. Number three, however, is... Something that he has noticed and is pointing out as one of the three major challenges for the church in our culture today is political polarization. And notice that it's not intrinsic to the church, but so many within the church have been drawn to the polls in politics that their political polarization has influenced their Christian faith more than their Christian faith influences their politics. And so we are first Democrat or Republican and second Christian in this framework. And again... Tim Keller is a cultural analyst 
who is very knowledgeable, very wise, he's way smarter than I am, and he points to this as one of the three main challenges for the church today. And that's in large part what this whole series is aimed at. So his, he offers four possible solutions, and he frames it in the four different cultural economies that the church has taken towards the culture. So he calls them cultural economies, just like how the church interfaces with the culture around us. How do we interact with the culture around us? What's our heart's disposition and our approach to the secular culture around us? He has four of them. The first one is purity from. So in this framework, this approach, it leads Christians to view themselves as being totally separate from the culture. It leaves the church disconnected from the culture around it. Okay, the extreme examples of this are like monasticism. It's like we're going to take our crew and go out to the country, away from culture, away from everybody, and plant ourselves and establish our own community here that is totally separate and distinct from everything else. We've seen this in various holiness movements throughout the history of the church, where the church will often do this. Like the church kind of just creates all of its own stuff, and that's what. Christians are encouraged to go to, to not be really a part of the culture, but have their own everything. Next approach is relevant too. So these first three, he doesn't recommend. The fourth one, he does. The second one is relevant too. In this approach, the church, it seeks to reach the culture by assimilating into it and adopting the values of the culture that are often contradictory to scripture. So we end up losing the truth or our moral values and convictions in an effort to relate and be relevant to the culture. In this framework, the church fails to represent the way of Jesus as distinct from the way of the world. So somebody encounters a Christian and the thought is, well, like what's different about the way you're living than the way I'm living, the way I'm thinking and what I believe? And so there's no distinctiveness between the way of Jesus and any other way. Some examples of this we've seen in the seeker-friendly movements of uh, the last 50 years or so or in something like the prosperity gospel, where the idea of of wealth and prosperity has influenced the church in such a strong manner that we've lost the way of Jesus. The third approach is defensive against. We see this very often in the culture today. This is like a, a culture war posture, that the church is at war with the secular culture in order to maintain Christian values within American culture. To do so, we have to go to war. We have to fight for it. And so we're defensive. We find ourselves constantly defending other ideologies that conflict with the way of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. And so we're always fighting. And we view it as our job to fight. Examples of this we've seen in certain like Christian science movements. This is one of the examples that I grew up with in the creation-evolution debate. Um, the religious right is often exemplifying this approach. Uh, If you're looking for just a specific individual, pastor, Greg Locke, if you've heard of him, if not, Google him. That's his approach, is fight the culture at every step. That's a defensive against posture. The posture that he recommends is a faithful presence within. I love the framework of that. I love the, the terminology, just a faithful presence within the culture. So the rest of our time, we're going to look at what that means. Our big idea is a faithful presence within the culture requires Christians to both bring good 
to the culture, to be about human flourishing, that when a church is planted in a community, it should make people's lives better. That community should be enriched. It should be better because the church is there. And stand against the culture. We must maintain our distinctiveness in following the way of Jesus within the culture around us. Our theology, the way of viewing the world, our lifestyle is going to be different in a lot of cases. So this idea, I think, rings so true, not because Tim Keller thought of it, but because Jesus thought of it and because that's the way that Jesus lived in his earthly ministry. <clears throat> and we see this in Matthew 5, 13, Jesus teaching it. So we're going to see Jesus teaching it, and then we're going to see Jesus living it in just a moment here. Matthew 5, 13, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So we see after that first statement of salt, the, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus kind of moves into a utility motif. He says, like, it's not good for anything. Salt in the ancient world, uh, so first and foremost, when we read a metaphor in scripture, like you are the salt of the earth, our mind shouldn't go to, what do I think of salt? Okay, <laughs> pause. If that's where your mind goes, pause. You're like, oh, I eat too much salt and that's bad for my health. It increases my blood pressure, so salt is not good. Not the framework of the first century audience hearing Jesus for the first time. So our goal should be to get into the minds of the first century audience and say, what do they think of salt? When they hear it, what did they hear Jesus saying? And in the first century world, the ancient world, salt was good for a lot of stuff. It was good for cleaning, purifying, for seasoning, for preservation, for even in war, they would use it to destroy crop fields of their enemy. It had a ton of uses. It was so useful that in certain instances, they, the, the, the Roman Empire would pay their soldiers in salt because they could turn it around and trade salt for just about anything. So that's where the phrase, you're not worth your salt, comes from, or he's not worth his salt, comes from, because it's so useful. And so that's what Jesus has in mind here, that when he calls Christians to be the salt of the earth, what he's saying is that they are to, to build culture, to be good for the world to promote human flourishing. That means they're a part of the culture through their work, through their jobs, through their living and, and doing life together within communities. We preserve it by fighting back evil in our communities and by preserving it from destruction in the ways that the devil wants to destroy. In general, Christians should be good for the lives of their neighbors. We should be helpful in our communities. Jesus doesn't just stop there. It sounds a little bit like the relevant to approach, right? He, just doesn't, he doesn't stop there, though. He goes on. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Light, to Jesus' original audience, would have a holiness motif, holiness theme. It, light always dispels darkness. Biblical authors often use light to describe the difference, to contrast the difference between good and evil. Light always reveals truth as well. 
We're talking about moral purity, truth, charity, generosity, living a lifestyle that is distinct, that is separate than the world. Living a life that is adhering to the truth, knowing the truth, believing the truth of the kingdom of God. So by calling Christians to be salt and light, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to this twofold declaration in the Christian life, that we are to be good for the culture, we're to be useful to it, that means being a part of it, contributing to human flourishing within the culture, but also dispelling darkness by living a life of holiness and illuminating truth within the culture around us. So it's those two ideas that we talked about. Now, Jesus didn't just teach this, Jesus lived it. And he gave us an example. I think the best way to illustrate this is through the example of Jesus. What we're going to do is look at the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It's like over 40 verses, so I'm not going to read it all for us today. I'm just going to kind of summarize the story and give us the details that uh, illustrate how Jesus is living a faithful presence within the culture around him. Because the culture of Jesus' day was very polarized as well, and yet he maintained his distinctiveness and still related to the culture around him. We'll go through it in the devotional. All right, so... I think on Thursday, I have it set up, so you can read through the whole story on Thursday of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of themes happening. There's a lot of teaching that Jesus gives her. We're just going to focus on Jesus' interactions with her and get the big picture of what's happening here. So, what happens is Jesus and his disciples, they're in Judea, and they decide to go to Galilee, which is a bit of a trip, and to do so, the text says that they had to go through Samaria. So scholars have noted that there was more than one way that Jews would often take to get to Samaria, or to get to Galilee. One way was through Samaria. The other way was through Gentile territory, and it was a little bit longer, uh, but there was two ways. So when we read this, first thing they would say is they had to, why does John indicate that they had to go through Samaria? Possibility is there was road construction on the other one, right? It's like, it's summer, there's barricades up, you can't do it, don't go that way. How frustrated do you get when you start going down a road and like, ah, it's closed, and then you turn around and go the other way. It's like, you know, we're just going to go a totally different way. Probably not, right? Um, most, the most likely option, John doesn't tell us, but the most likely option is that Jesus had a compulsion from the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit was leading him in some way, shape, or form to go through this route through Samaria. So as they're traveling, they come to the city called Sychar. And the disciples, they go into town to buy food. Jesus, he hangs out outside of town at the well. It's about noon, and this woman comes out to draw water. Now, again, an astute observer of the culture of this day would know that it's not the normal time that folks would come out to draw water. They normally would come out early in the morning or later in the evening when it wasn't so darn hot. Okay? And they would often come out in groups. So the women would travel together for safety, for camaraderie, companionship, all of that. This woman is out here alone and at the wrong time. <laughs> so that would immediately kind of get the reader thinking, why? And as we come to learn throughout the story, it's likely that she has been socially ostracized by her community. Most likely, she's ashamed of herself and her lifestyle. And the rest of the story kind of reveals that to be the case. Jesus asked her for a drink then. 
And she's stunned by this. She's like, wait, what? <laughs> Why would you ask me for a drink, the text says, because Jews don't usually talk to Samaritans. They really didn't like each other. Like think Romeo and Juliet times 100, right? They really despised one another. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds of the people of Israel. They were called to not intermarry with other cultures and bring their gods then into their culture. The Samaritans did. After they were overtaken by the Assyrians, the Assyrians conquered Samaria. Part of the Assyrian approach was to have people from their culture move into the towns, the cities that they conquered, and intermarry with them in order to have this pluralistic society based on Assyrian culture and values. And the Samaritans, they did that. The Samaritans, they had their own religion and their own ideas. They didn't accept all the books of the Old Testament. Um, they had, at various times throughout their history, the northern kingdom of Samaria had allied with Judah's enemies, the southern kingdom, and fought each other. And the southern kingdom did the same, so they had wars against each other. And wars in the ancient world were very ugly and very awful. And the Samaritans, they'd even at one point desecrated the Jewish temple at Passover by leaving human bones in the temple. Ooh, see, some real Romeo and Juliet stuff going on here. Okay, so they've got political polarization, religious polarization going on here between uh, Jesus and this woman, just by nature of her being a Samaritan and him being a Jew. Not only that, she's also a woman. The Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish laws, added to the original Mosaic law. So it's laws on top of laws to help you not break the other laws, right? It's, like, it's, it's a lot of laws, right? They're like guardrails to help you not get close to the law of Moses. So like, if you don't want to break the law of Moses, like set the, set the yard line here, or the guardrail here. In a few short years after Jesus' life and ministry, the Mishnah would codify this that was already common teaching in Jesus' day, that Samaritan women were in a permanent state of uncleanness. So for Jesus to interact with her would make him unclean, according to the Mishnah and Jewish law. So if he were to do that, then when he returns to Jerusalem, he would have to go through an eight-day cleansing process, as Paul does in the book of Acts. But Jesus talks to her. Jesus asks her for water. Through their conversation together, he tells her that he prophetically knows that she's had five husbands. And the man that she's now living with is not her husband. Likely the reason why she's out there at noon and ashamed. And by herself, right? Band, you guys can come and get set up. He tells her that salvation is from the Jews and that he himself is the Messiah and that if she would ask him, he would give her living water. Eternal life is at play and the Holy Spirit within her if she would ask him. And then eventually, the whole town comes out to meet Jesus and they ask him to stay for a couple of days. And he does and he stays with them and he teaches them. And at the end of the story, lots of people come to believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah through this interaction. And this beautiful, beautiful description at the end of it. The people of the town tell her, we no longer believe that he is the Messiah because you have told us, but because we've encountered him ourselves. It's this beautiful picture of how Jesus has interacted with her. It led to his interactions with the entire town. 
and how he faithfully represented the kingdom, the gospel message that he was bringing into this town. In a culture, in a moment that was incredibly polarizing, (laughs) politically, religiously, all of it. And yet, Jesus faithfully represented what it looks like to be salt and light in this moment. We'll apply this text later when we come up. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for your teaching, for, Lord, how you have taught us that we are to be salt and to be light, that we are to bring good, to bring, promote human flourishing in our world, to be useful to the world. Lord, we are to build culture. We're to remain in our communities. And yet, Lord, we are to be holy and distinct, to be a city on a hill that shines the light of the gospel and the truth of Jesus. Lord, as you guide us in this tension to follow your way, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Lord, we worship you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, for your kindness to us. Lord, we, we pray that your spirit would inspire us and move in us to faithfully represent you to the world around us, to faithfully live out the life that you have called us to, to adhere to your truth, to love and care for all people, to bring your kingdom here, Lord, as you have started when you came and you walked this earth. So, Lord, would you move in our hearts? Give us a heart after yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. Our big idea was a faithful presence within the culture requires us as Christians to both bring good into the culture and to stand against the culture. We're called to be both salt and light. Called to promote human flourishing, build culture, do good but also it will require us to live a life of holiness, to speak truth. And Jesus modeled this perfectly in his life. So the tension and a challenge that, <laughs> it's a real challenge. <laughs> it's real hard to get it right. And we're going to slip up from time to time, but... That must be our heart and our goal. Okay, we're going to play a little bit of revisionist history. All right, I know the term is usually used in a pejorative sense of somebody who, who talks about history or, or only includes certain aspects of history that support their worldview at the neglect of others, right? They, they do this manipulatively to try to, to try to just prove their point, right? But what we're going to do is, in the literal sense of this term, we're just going to revise history and play the what-if game, all right? Find this fun. I had a lot of fun doing, thinking through this this week. And what we're going to do is take the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and imagine if Jesus had approached culture from one of those other three views. (laughs) See where I'm going? Now, as we're going through this, I think you'll see similarities, comparisons to today and how... We are tempted in how some approach culture 
today. Okay, I think that's the best way to illustrate it. So one, if Jesus had the purity from approach in John chapter 4, he would have never been in, Gal- in uh, Samaria, right? That would be like uh, the place the light doesn't touch, <laughs> to reference Lion King. Like, don't ever go there, Simba, right? Like, he's not going there. That's like the space where we don't venture out there. That's dangerous. That's scary, right? If Jesus had this approach, what he would have done, and he would have one of two things. One is like set up a retreat center in Capernaum. I love this idea. This is hilarious to me. Like if Jesus just set up a retreat center in Capernaum, threw out some ads with come and float in the Sea of Galilee with me and wash all of your stress away. And I'll sit on the boat and we can have our little boat side chats. And it'll be so calm and peaceful. Different meaning of come and rest your soul, Right? Or what Jesus would have done is just gone out into the desert and established his own community. That's kind of what the Essenes did. And brought his disciples out there and said, okay, this is, this is our camp. This is like our monastic camp where we're going to set up shop because we're afraid that we might be so strongly influenced by the culture instead of us giving our holiness and shedding our light to the culture and being good for the culture, that they will distort my teaching and our way of life. Now, Jesus could have had some good reasons for this. He's like, I don't know. We don't know much about Bartholomew. Maybe he was real gullible, right? Maybe he had a difficult past. And you're like, oh, no, he might revert back into these things. So what we need to do is totally separate and isolate some of my disciples from the rest of the world in order to protect them and keep them safe. As we're going through this, what I've been struck by is just how these appeal to some of the, the like deepest parts of our nature. Like purity from, it appeals so deeply to our fear, right? We're afraid that the culture will influence us so that we won't, that we won't be able to be salt and light. Instead, we will be distorted. Purity from. And even if Jesus happened to find himself at the well that day, and this woman approached the well to draw water. Jesus prophetically knows her lifestyle, that she's had five husbands, and the one man she's living with now wasn't her husband. We don't know exactly what happened in those former relationships, but the connotation is that she lived a promiscuous lifestyle. Jesus is like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Don't tempt me. Don't tempt my disciples when they come back. So we're just going to we're not going to talk. Let's, let's just avoid each other. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the other well, wherever that is. And he would just stay away from her. But instead, Jesus initiates the conversation. And he's able to maintain his holiness and still connect with her on a deep level. Next approach, relevant to. This is the approach where we get to imagine Jesus like a trendy, hip youth pastor. And it's just funny. It's so fun. Imagine Jesus with a beanie and whatever. Ugh. It's like the t-shirt, right? When Jesus is my homeboy. Like, ugh. So dumb. All right. <laughs> if Jesus had this approach, his primary goal would have just been to connect with her, right? And to build bridges with her at the expense of truth. He likely would have excused her lifestyle, saying, ah, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. God loves, God loves everybody. 
Like, I know you've lived a life of, of sin, and ah, don't worry about it. You're okay. You're good. No worries. He certainly wouldn't have challenged her bad theology because people don't like to have their theology <laughs> challenged, right? In the conversation, she ends up asking him when she discovers that he's a prophet, she says, which mountain are we supposed to worship on? This is a hot topic, religious topic of the day. Are we supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans did? Or are we supposed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem? If Jesus' approach were relevant too, he wouldn't have challenged her as he did. What he does in the conversation is he says, a time is coming when we'll no longer worship on this mountain or that mountain, but worship God in spirit and in truth. And he tells her that he, the Messiah, again, he's the Messiah, and he is going to usher in this era, in this time. He tells her that salvation is from the Jews. (laughs) She had built her entire religious life on being a Samaritan and hating the Jews. And Jesus challenged her on that truth. But ultimately, what Jesus does is he points her to himself as the source of living water. What he says is, belief in him. If she would have asked him, then he would have given her living water that would well up to eternal life. If Jesus were approaching this from a relevant to approach, he would have been like, now this is Jacob's well. Jacob's cool. Jacob and I are good, man. I love him. He's one of the original OGs. He and I, like, he's a patriarch. Yeah. Jacob's cool. Just drink this water. You're good. No. <laughs> He wouldn't have pointed her to himself as the source of real living water, which is what she truly needed, and challenged her ideas and her thinking. All in all, Jesus would have compromised on truth in order to build bridges with her, to connect with her. And again, this appeals to one of the deepest levels of who we are and our desire for acceptance in this relevant to approach. What if? What if I challenge and people know that I have a different theology or a different view or I think Jesus is the exclusive way to God? That's not popular. Today, people aren't going to like me. It appeals to a deep fear that we have. Next is this defensive against approach. (laughs) If Jesus had this approach, he would have gone to Samaria looking for a fight. Remember, this is the culture war mentality. Jesus would have gone into Samaria hoping to strike up a conversation with someone in order to own the Samaritans once and for all. And he certainly would have picked out this woman because she was vulnerable. She was out there alone, remember? She lived a life of deep shame. She didn't have the education, the rhetorical ability that Jesus had. He would have started by first embarrassing her and making her feel small. He would have embarrassed her for being there at noon. Where are all your friends? <laughs> Why are you here alone? Oh, nobody likes you. I get it. <laughs> what did you do to deserve this? And of course, Jesus would have prophetically known what she did, but making her say it emphasizes the shame and gives him a position of power over her. And he would dive into accusing her for her moral lifestyle. Did you, did you not learn the law when you were a kid? Right? Did you not know that this was wrong, and yet you're doing it anyways? If you would have just followed it, everything would be okay. 
You made your bed, now lie in it. Deal. And then he probably would have launched into a rant about the Samaritans because folks in a defensive against posture like to rant a lot. Samaritans, you guys are the worst. <laughs> this is what you get when you play fast and loose with scripture. You don't accept all of it. So what you get when you intermarry with foreigners and bring their gods into your culture and start worshiping them. You even set up your own temple. What's that all about? Come on. Of course, you do these things that's going to lead to immorality and stupid questions. Jesus doesn't sound like a very fun guy, right? <laughs> you notice how my tone changes when I start talking like that? And combative, very aggressive. Again, this appeals to a deep part of our sinful nature and our desire for power and our desire to win at all costs. Appeals to our insecurities of us being uncovered or discovered as a fraud and not knowing our stuff good enough. And so we feel the need to defend ourselves against anyone and everyone who espouses an ideology that we disagree with. And we even frame it in positive language and say, if we don't, it even appeals to our fear, right? If, if we don't, then our culture is going to keep descending into immorality and, and not know truth, and so we have to fight. we got to fight for it. We're fighting for our culture. This is good. That wasn't Jesus' approach. Thank God Jesus didn't have those approach, because that guy's a jerk, right? <laughs> and nobody wants to hang out with that guy. Instead, Jesus' approach was faithfully presenting the gospel. This kingdom that he was bringing, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't fear to go into spaces where the purists wouldn't go. In fact, I think the connotation that John says by, that he had to go there is that the Spirit led him there, and he wasn't afraid to go there. He connected with people that the purists wouldn't. If you had a purity from approach, you would never connect with this woman. And at the same time, he still stood for what is true and what is right. He didn't excuse sin. He still shed light on the truth in a way that wasn't argumentative, that wasn't combative, that was still winsome and loving and kind. It's one of the big questions that we have to struggle with in our day of how do we live a life? How do we present the truth in a way that is loving and kind, that isn't combative and argumentative in a polarized culture where everybody wants to fight? And Jesus represents a beautiful way of doing it here. And ultimately, Jesus pointed her to belief in himself as the source of living water. Jesus knows that if she were to come to him, believe in him, trust in him for her salvation, he says that he would give her living water that would well up into eternal life. And that's truly what she needed. And through this interaction with this woman, not only did she discover Jesus as the source of living water and eternal life that she could live in here and now, but a lot of the town discovered it as well because they experienced a life with Christ. 
Jesus demonstrated a way for us to be both salt and light. Because that's the way of Jesus, is to live in that tension of being salt and light. Now, I want to invite you to just reflect for a moment. I think your personality, all of our personalities, tends to draw us towards one of those first three. Purity from, relevant to, defensive against. Remember, these appeal to some deep things within us. Our, our fear, our desire for acceptance and power, our desire to win. So I want you to just close your eyes and just sit and reflect for a moment. Think about a situation that perhaps you found yourself in where you experienced that tension of being salt and light, a conversation that you just happened upon with somebody, and you experienced the tension. Which, which one is your personality more prone to going towards than a faithful presence to the gospel within our culture? And then think through, what could you have done? Or how could you have acted differently? Or how can you know and live out the truth of the gospel differently to be a faithful presence within the culture, to be both salt and light? this before we sing one more song. You notice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say you are going to do salty things. You are going to do lighty things. I don't know if that's a word or not, but whatever. He says that's who you are. And in John chapter 4, he says that he would give us living water, right? What, he, what he's implying is that when you, when you believe in Jesus, and he gives you the Holy Spirit of God, and he gives you this eternal life, that he transforms your inner life in such a way that you can just be salt and light to the world. And so then the things that we do that are, that are good for the world and the light that we shine, the truth of God and the holiness of God to the world is just a natural outworking of who Christ is making us into. And who the Holy Spirit of God is working within us to become. And so our desire becomes to be salt and light, to faithfully represent the gospel in our culture instead of this desire to just fight or to withdraw from it or to just be relevant to it. And so our prayer, would you guys just pray with me? Lord, our prayer is that your spirit would just move in us to make us more like Jesus, to give us a heart that longs for, that desires to be salt and light in this world, to be a faithful presence of the gospel in the world for you, Jesus, for your kingdom. So Lord, would you make us into these people in our time spent with you in our prayer life as we read scripture, Lord, as we converse with one another, you just form our inner life to be more like Christ. 
that, Lord, this salt and light would just emanate out of us just by nature of who we are and who you are making us to be. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together. Again, if you need prayer, Helen is in the back. She would love to pray with you.